So uh, we're continuing with our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series, and this is I'm calling this the special Tuesday night edition. And uh, so uh, this past Sunday's was actually in order past this one, so we're kind of going backwards. Uh, element seven I, the pattern of the five, first five steps in Christ, and then. We're coterminously doing a series called Baptizing the Holy Spirit series, the 2017 version, because we had two or three other versions in years past. And um, on that series, we're on chapter 7, four contemporary perspectives that should be on the Holy Spirit, biblically examined, typo there. Um, So what we're going to do the next two weeks here, so we actually did chapter 9 of the Holy Spirit series this past Sunday because I figured that we have a little longer to talk on Tuesday nights. And in this four contemporary perspectives on the Holy Spirit, biblically examined, is, going to, is a little bit more material and is going to take a little longer. So I'm not going to... Uh, you know, your eight essential elements, is. I didn't repost the titles. Most of the outlines have those. Uh, you know we're doing uh, element seven, the first five steps into the kingdom, which is, uh, and we did an introduction to the idea of pattern Sunday. Um, so all of that I'm not going to review. I'm just going to jump down to uh, um Roman numeral six. Tonight, what we're going to start talking about is four contemporary perspectives on the Holy Spirit. Now, first, I want to introduce them and briefly define them. The first one you might call the modernist or materialist viewpoint. And um, if you were to, you, a lot, you hear us talk a lot in this church, and we did a whole semester at Wright State on various biblical hermeneutical paradigms, ways of interpreting scripture or schools of thought for interpreting scripture that grew out of what was known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. So that phrase itself is kind of spoken of in two ways. If you were to Wikipedia, Google it kind of thing and find it on Wikipedia, it would refer mostly to the controversy within the Presbyterian church that came to a head in the 1820s uh, between Princeton and so forth and uh, Andy probably knows a lot more about that than me, but um, Jay Gresham, Megan, Macon, if you uh, you might know some of that thing, but I'm actually kind of using it in a little lar- larger context. Uh, that um, if you kind of right, I, you know, it's kind of hard to say when these things started. Obviously, the fundamentalist or evangelical uh, culture of today was influenced by things that came out of the Anabaptist movement and in, in, in the Reformation, uh, certainly the Ar- James Arminius, um, the Wesley brothers, and so forth. So all of that, you know, has, there's no kind of clear point where you can say this idea happened here and this idea happened there. But uh, in general, we kind of define modernist as embracing two ideas, uh, one was Darwinism. If you remember, we talked a little bit about evolution and Darwinism, and the other was a concept called higher criticism. And we we developed those in some detail on Tuesday nights at Wrightsdale. But in, in essence, the higher criticism idea uh, and Darwinism both have a philosophical root. There's if you know if you looked at our worldview chart that we went through, that we listed four major worldviews, polytheism, pantheism, uh 
theism or monotheism and materialism. And evolutionary thought is generally based in materialism and the idea that material is eternal and material is all there is. So uh, that idea has continued to push itself into more and more di academic disciplines. For instance, if you were to study psychology at a university, secular university in the 1970s, you would still be studying like the selfish psycho psychologists that came from around the turn of the century, like Maslow and Rogers, and you know, that, you know all that Maslow's need hierarchy and all that kind of stuff. Today, in most universities, your psychology is primarily dealing with chemicals and neurons and things, you know, like all phys physiological uh, things that happen inside people. In most. More and more, uh, psychology is turned over to the psychiatrist for the use of drugs and, and this kind of thing because it's, it's depressing out of a materialist worldview further and further and further. And so, um, in terms of um, modernism, there... You know, you, you could you could say that it started to rise with the you know with the Renaissance. You could say it started to rise with the Enlightenment. It certainly grew a lot in terms of its main thinking. Uh, out of the Enlightenment came the Deist. Many of our founding fathers, like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, were Deists. Some of you probably know that Jefferson actually uh, has. There's a Jefferson Bible you can buy, and it's. Uh, what Jefferson, with his anti-supernatural worldview, he liked, he thought some of Christ's teachings were morally good and superior, so he wrote a Bible of what he could still believe in, getting rid of the resurrection and the virgin birth and, and the miracles of Christ and casting out of demons and keeping some of the moral flavor. And it's a very small book, <laughs> because if you take the miracles out of the New Testament, you're left with a very small book. And... Uh, but you can, I, uh, I have a copy of the Jefferson Bible at my house if you want to borrow it. Um, if you're trying to read the whole Jefferson Bible, it's a lot quicker. <laughs> it's a pretty short book. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of saying where did modernism start is a little bit tough. But in general, that it's, it's based in a materialist philosophy that took root in Western culture progressively. Okay, and there were key spots like the Enlightenment that advanced it much further. Uh, but eventually, it was Darwinism and higher criticism that became kind of the crowning ideas that grew out of that growing materialistic base, is all I'm trying to say. I don't know if I said that well. Um, higher criticism, in short, just started with uh, what was called the uh, documentary hypothesis, and it was started by a, a German theologian named Julius Wellhausen, and he basically said that the, the books of Moses came from four sources, and they weren't really written by Moses. But there was the, the Yahweh source and the Elohim source and so forth. And eventually various editors and redactors took various materials and, and wove them together, and that's how we got the first five books of the Bible, but they have nothing to do with Moses or divine inspiration or the miraculous or anything like that. And so then these kind of ideas were applied to the book of Daniel and et cetera, et cetera, all the way through to the New Testament. And Paul 
only wrote maybe six of the 13 books attributed to his name. So it was kind of a, a rejection of what the ancient Hebrews had always taught about who authored their books and about what the early church always taught about who authored the books of both Testaments, in fact. Because so, the early church always uh, followed what the ancient Hebrews had said. And so with that higher criticism and the doubting of who wrote it, also became kind of a turning the, the his, historical narratives into an idea that it's just mythopoeic history. Uh, that is fictional novels. And what's important, like in Aesop's fables, is not whether there was a little mouse that took the, that took the uh, thorn out of the lion's foot or whatever, but what we can learn from such a story. And so, um, you know, modernists will... Uh, I think it, when I was in, in college, I read a survey of Episcopalian pastors, and it was like 88% of them rejected the virgin birth and the, and the resurrection and, and this kind of thing. And you'll think, you know, to a conservative Christian, you'll think, well, why would someone still be a Christian? And they would actually say, well, it's not important that Jesus, you, you know, rose from the dead or didn't rise from the dead. Of course, they think he didn't because they would... They a priori have a materialist worldview that rejects all miracles. But what's important is the disciples had resurrection faith, that somehow the disciples believed it, and they believed it enough to become very zealous and a world-changing force and so forth. And, uh, and it becomes kind of ridiculous, but nevertheless, blindness is blindness, and a lot of people with a lot of alphabet soup after their name believe these things. So, um, see if I can get myself on track. So, um, that's, in a nutshell, modernism. And modernism would basically, therefore, reject the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture and the historical accuracy and basically say it's stories with morals. Therefore, modernism in its uniqueness, uh, when it's pushed out to its extremes, would reject Christianity as being unique among world religions. And it's just one good moral philosophy like a lot of other good moral philosophies. Even though those moral philosophies are contradictory in a lot of places. We'll deal with that law of non-contradiction again a little bit down the road here. Cessationism and the new modified cessationism. Cessationism is, is based on the word ceased, and it's the idea that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and as practiced in both the Gospels and the Epistles, that those ceased with the death of the Apostles and with the writing of, of the 27 books of Scripture, and that they were only given uh, to the Apostles in, until the, ch the church spread and uh, was well-founded until the 27 books were written. And then after that, we had all the truth we needed. Therefore, God stopped speaking. And uh, we'll look at that. Now, the new modified cessationism, which is growing rapidly, takes into account the fact that many non-cessationists have documented that there are hundreds of documents from church fathers of the first five century that attest to speaking in tongues, casting out demons, the lame walking, uh, people being raised from the dead, and all sorts of other miraculous phenomena in the church in the second, third, fourth, and fifth century. 
So now there's kind of an idea that's growing. Uh, those of you who've listened to our the church history lecture series that we uh, uh, have, have used for the church history class by Donald Fortson at Reformed Theological Seminary, he, uh, I don't know if he's an advocate of that theory, but he at least tells of that theory, and it seems that he's espousing it, that perhaps, uh, because he's saying clearly uh, these phenomena didn't stop in the second, third, and fourth century. He's too educated to know, to believe that. And so he says, but they did seem to to to, to slow down uh, to some degree after Augustine or so forth. And of course, I, Augustine is slightly after the canonization of Scripture, so Augustine himself is not necessarily a good example of that would under that would give credence to that theory. But the problem is, is that of course, as we looked at, uh, was it? Yeah, last Tuesday night we did we did uh, just the history of spiritual gifts after the apostles, and there's just too many throughout the centuries that attest to spiritual gifts. And you get into people like we we mentioned Bernard of Clairvaux last week, and when you get into guys like that, you know uh, Martin Luther said it would be impossible for anyone to love Jesus more than Bernard of Clairvaux did. And uh, Calvin quoted extensively from Bernard of Clairvaux. But Bernard of Clairvaux was known for 30 to 35 miracles every day. At least when he traveled and preached throughout what is now France. So, you know, you kind of can't have it both ways. So we'll, we'll deal with cessationism more later. But the new sort of modified cessationism is that perhaps it wasn't when the New Testament books were written because it's pretty clear that in the first century, most churches in the Roman Empire had at least 22 or 23 of those 27 books within their church, and they were constantly being copied and traded and sent here and there. But there was no official canon of Scripture. Uh, Athanasius, in a letter that he wrote, sort of was the first official list of the 27. And we talked about the process that 1 Corinthians 11.19 says that there must also be heresies, uh, modern translations usually translate the word factions or schisms, but the Greek word is heresis. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Even my Greek teacher used to get mad at me about my lack of being able to pronounce words right. But <laughs> anyway, however you pronounce that word, the Greek word is the word we get heresies from. And uh, he's, Paul says there must be heresies among you so that the way of the truth can become manifest or evident. God actually ordained the challenges that emerge within the church to the, to the apostolic teaching so the church could clarify what the scriptures taught. And that's what you see happening in the first seven ecumenical councils and with the canonization of scripture and the writing of, of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the symbol of Chalcedon, and so forth. So... That stuff we've taught on elsewhere and so forth. A third perspective that we'll look at next week is called the third wave. Um, mostly the third wave rose, in, for the most part, in the 1980s. A lot of people would uh, say that what was known as the charismatic movement started in the late 50s, 59 or so. Some would date it to 63. Um, that it sort of reached its zenith from 67 to maybe 75 and that it started dying in the early 80s with the rise of the megachurch out of the 70s church growth movement. And um, so along with that, uh, in the 80s, there was a figure named John Wimber who's passed away 
at this point, but started a movement of churches called the Vineyard Churches. And the Vineyard eventually developed two models within its movement. Steve Shogren, who's a friend of mine, developed like a second model. So there, there became, most Vineyard Churches were known for its worship and its uh, in powerful spiritual gifts happening. Um, however, some Vineyard Churches were more on the seeker-sensitive model and what they called servant evangelism and so forth. And that model actually developed in Cincinnati, Ohio, of all places. But... Um, most Vineyard churches are more of the John Wimber model. And Wimber kind of brought spiritual gifts in a lot of ways to the mainstream for a lot of people. And primarily because they taught, and we'll deal with this a little bit in this series, especially when we, in weeks to come, they taught that it's quite possible to be baptized in the Holy Spirit without necessarily manifesting speaking in tongues as a private prayer language or, or so forth. And uh, that's not a new idea. There was a guy back in the 20s named R.E. Torrey that taught that. And um, it's not a new idea, but it does tend to be a little more popular among some, some because tongues is really sort of a difficult thing to get your mind around. And, uh, and I think We'll, so we'll deal with our view of that. Uh, but in, in a nutshell, we do believe sometimes that people get baptized in the Spirit without getting a prayer language to speak in tongues. However, they could have gotten a prayer language to speak in tongues had they been more properly instructed, and, and, uh, and they should have, and it would help them. And so we'll defend that position later in this series. But um, the third wave kind of made uh, some things like lifting hands and praying for the sick and healings, and all that kind of stuff, uh, a little bit more popular, um, and it hit places like, you know, there was a Brownsville Revival, uh, a Toronto Air Force Fellowship, and it really was known for tremendous manifestations of the Spirit, but not necessarily that when you got, the, got zapped by the Spirit, or filled with the Spirit, or a greater release of the Spirit, or baptized in the Spirit, that you didn't necessarily get a prayer language. And the idea also grew that you might get that prayer language, you know, days from now, weeks from now, or years from now. So um, the third wave, unfortunately, in most places has sort of degenerated to, because to, uh, uh, I'm just trying to define it, we'll talk about it next week in more detail. But um, in most places, the third wave has kind of degenerated into churches who say, we believe God still does these things today. But we do. But we also think it would be wrong to focus on that, or get too, you know, like too uh, absorbed in that. And as we'll see next week, the problem is is that in First Corinthians twelve and First Corinthians fourteen, five times Paul tells us to pursue earnestly spiritual gifts. So, if you read if you read those two chapters carefully, you'll be able to catch on to five times where they were told that. We're not supposed to be passive about spiritual gifts. So, uh, I, I have a pastor friend who uh, was actually, uh, they were part of the Church of Christ non-denominational, which is about as sectarian and, and cessationist and dispensational as they come. And um, a number of these churches came into a powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. They got kicked out of the Church of Christ non-instrumental they have formed an association of churches that I was part of for a number of years called Christ Church Fellowship. And some of them uh, 
began to actively seek spiritual gifts in their church, churches, while others said, well, we believe God does that, but we think it would be wrong to focus on that. If he wants to do that, he can do it, but we're not about to, you know, seek seeing God do that. And whenever you see that posture, you generally see uh, very little activity of the Holy Spirit, because frankly, we are living in a very natural-minded culture, a culture of skepticism and unbelief and natural-mindedness, and to journey into experiencing more of the presence and power in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I believe, takes somewhat of an active, uh, educated, intentional direction. So we'll look at that more next week. Lastly is continuationism, and that kind of breaks down into two camps. Uh, continuationism is based on the idea that especially in the, John's version of the Last Supper, Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to continue my ministry. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God's going to continue to do the things Jesus did. Preach the gospel to the poor, build a community of believers, disciple, cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead. And that will continue until the second coming of Christ. And therefore, there would be no change in the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit, even after the canonization of the Scripture and so forth, because the Holy Spirit will be the same in every age. Uh, whether God does more or less by the Holy Spirit is, is subject to two things. One, his sovereign purposes, and two, uh, his sovereign purposes uh, working on our, in our life in such a way that by grace we begin to seek more of that. And... Uh, which is by God's initiation in the first place. So, um, some continuationists, you know, there's actually in the Gospel Coalition, they kind of have taken a posture, for instance, of having articles by continuationists and articles by cessationists, because it's like, well, nobody's agreed on this stuff, so let's just present articles in favor of both positions by various guys. Some continuations, you might say, in, their, in the practice of their churches, it's sort of a merely theoretical continue. Like, God still does these things today, but we're not seeing much of it, but we theologically believe that God still does these things today, and we're not supposed to focus on it too much or whatever, but we do know that he can still do whatever he wants. And uh, But then you have... Uh, Groups that tend to call themselves Pentecostals or Charismatics that tend to be more active in seeking these things. And so we'll deal with that next week. Um, if you're interested in this subject, there's a book that we have some copies of back there that's about 350 pages. I would recommend the, it was, I believe it was his master's thesis, uh, William D. Ortega is the guy's name, and... Um, the, there's about 50 footnotes for every chapter, but it would be well worth your reading the footnotes. <laughs> so um, I, I recommend if you're going to read the book, take the time to read all the footnotes because they're, um, they're very, they would be very helpful. Uh, he, it, sometimes you'll see a subtitle that's actually on the cover of Quenching the Spirit, something like uh, the, real, the Real Spirit Behind the, con the Charismatic Controversy or something like that. And so um, we're going to use a little bit of his argumentation later tonight anyway. All right, so now let's get into these four contemporary perspectives and examine them a little more thoroughly in, 
and briefly biblically critique them um, or evaluate them, you might say. So modernism, um, again, if you Google fundamentalist modernist controversy, you're going to mostly get an article about the controversy that happened within the Presbyterian Church in the 1920s. But if you kind of read a lot of church history or whatever, you'll see that it's actually uh, in the times, uh, the, uh, uh, the times of Charles Spurgeon, he called it the downgrade controversy. And Charles Spurgeon is what would today be called a Reformed Baptist. However, at the time, they called themselves Particular Baptists. Uh, after the Calvinistic doctrine of election and so forth. So um, in Spurgeon, for example, was actually so depressed over the downgrade controversy that he pulled his church out of the Baptist Union in, in uh, England, and he never did really recover from how depressing he found the whole thing to be, and it, it was actually a big part of why he died so young. He died at 57, which may not sound young to you, John Luke, but... Believe me, it's too young to die. <laughs> um, all right, so we've already touched on this. The philosophical roots of modernism are materialism, which is also known as naturalism. Uh, I would say it's the unbelief uh, of our age. It's the skepticism of our age. It's the pseudo-intellectualism. One of the things you'll see whenever you see kind of a natural-minded uh, materialist only, it tends to go with kind of a, ironically, a spiritual pride or sort of an attitude of, you know, like we know better. Uh, you, you, uh, most Darwinists I have known are extremely prideful people. And, uh, you know, kind of like we're the enlightened ones and the rest of you are barbarians. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, let's read a little bit from 1 Corinthians 10. When I have the dot, 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 it just means I took a one verse out or so so that I could fit it on the page. So you can turn there if you want so you don't miss any. Uh, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, searches all things, even the depths of God. Like the Spirit searches the heart of God, the mind of God, all the things about God. He, that, in fact, that's one of the reasons you need a greater release of the Holy Spirit in your life is because the more the Holy Spirit is active in your life and stirred up and the more you're filled with his presence, the more it will cause you to hunger and thirst for God. Uh, even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words, it takes spiritual vocabulary to understand theology and so forth. Everyone, You always hear people go, we only use the Bible, and we only use biblical words and so forth, but the Bible teaches us to develop a spiritual vocabulary. So you're actually being anti-Bible when you say that. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them, and he cannot understand them. Those are uh, underlined on those underlining is my emphasis, because they are spiritually appraised. ESV and, and King, New King James use discern, but he who is spiritual appraises again ESV and New King James uses judges all things, yet he himself is appraised or judged by no one. 
So um, when there's a, a kind of a mindset of skepticism, unbelief, naturalism, um, then there becomes this a priori elimination of, of miracles. So uh, of necessity, things like the resurrection must have just not really happened. It's just the disciples thought they happened. The virgin birth couldn't have happened. That's just a myth. Um, Jesus' miracles couldn't be real because a priori we know these don't happen. And therefore, the scriptures couldn't be give, written by the Holy Spirit through men. The inspiration of scripture doctrine is completely thrown out the window. So the Bible is just stories. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, And even if, the gospel is, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God, small g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, those of you who know that, obviously, we believe in biblical doctrines like election, we, verses like, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, uh, and so forth. So uh, those of us who have been granted conviction of sins, confession of sins, repentance, trust and faith in Christ, in, in, in Christ alone, and so forth, we believe that God drew us to that. We had our sinful nature gave us no propensity to, to be seeking those things or believing those things or be attracted to those things. We were, in fact, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. There was none who seeks for God, including us. No, not one. And so um, unbelief is, this, is the state of fallen man. And there are some cultures that are less affected by Christianity than others and some cultures more affected by materialism. And if you look at the four major worldviews, polytheism, pantheism, materialism, and theism, Western culture from the beginning has been somewhat of a war between materialism and theism. And at times, uh, materialism is influencing the culture more, and at times, theism more. But the two, uh, despite the fact that, that, that all of Western culture has been based on a battle between those two worldviews, those two worldviews are completely incompatible. It's kind of amazing. Now, when uh, some of you went through our thing this past spring and saw the chart we did on worldviews and, and the other chart we did on epistemology, how do we know things, and theist and materialist actually some have some overlap in what they would consider valid epistemologies, but that's another subject. Um, so again, in the materialist, the view of Scripture is, is mythopoeic. As everyone should know about that word by now. You can break it down into two its parts. Um, there's a um, very good book, if you ever want to read it, by Frankfurt and Frankfurt, a husband and wife team. I think the husband was Henry Frankfurt. Uh, called Before Philosophy, which is all about... Oh, oh. <laughs> I was like, echo. All right. Um, so, um, 
as you know, all men are made in the image of God, right? So everybody has what's called a cosmogony in their heart, whether they know that word or don't know that word or know what I'm talking about or not. But cosmos is just the, the Greek word for the order or the universe. Genos is the word for the birth. Everybody has ideas about where it all came from. You're inescapably religious because you're made in the image of God, and you will ask those questions. I can remember being four and five and six-year-old and starting to ask, like, where did it all come from? Who started it all? And then I was being raised Catholic, and I did not become an agnostic till about age 10. And I remember for a while sort of believing Christianity might have some validity and that sort of thing. So then you're wrestling with, like, if God existed forever like what was before god and you know and, and everybody is wrestling with those things you have to that's part of being created in the image of god so a materialist comes to a you know a priori assumption that there are no there is no spiritual side of life uh, many of you know that marxism is developed is based on a dialectical materialism and one I remember standing on the front porch of the campus ministry house at uh, Ohio State University back in the 80s, and our next-door neighbors had just gotten here from communist China, and they'd been in the U.S. one or two weeks, and I was talking to them about Jesus Christ and so forth, and they were really fascinated. They said, you believe in a resurrection from the dead? They were thought that was really fascinating, and uh, they had never heard of such a thing. And that you believe there's a spiritual side of life that's just as real as the physical side of life? They were like, we got to come to church and find out more about this. Uh, because they thought that was clearly incredible. And they had been taught that, no, that that was what superstitious ancient people used to believe. That no modern people believe such things. Because education had taught us better as it does in public schools and Marxist schools and so forth. <laughs> All right, so um, some of the adherents of, the, of, of uh, the modernism that I'm just talking about Christian adherents, if, if that's not an oxymoron, it, it little, is a little, uh, would include what would be known today as the mainstream Protestantism and many Roman Catholics and many or most Eastern Orthodox clergy. Now, some examples among Protestants would include almost all Episcopalians. Um, some of you know Deanna's parents are part of a church like this. And uh, the first church I planted in Dayton, after I had left that, they joined what was called the Reformed Episcopalian denomination. And the Reformed Episcopalians were pe people who saw around the 1870s when they saw higher criticism and Darwinism being embraced, and they understood the implications of that undermining the biblical faith enough to know that that's going to unleash every sort of idea. And they, you know, most Episcopalians didn't get upset enough to leave the Episcopalian church until shortly after the year 2000 when they started ordaining homosexual ministers and so forth. My, my uh, brother-in-law, Catherine's brother, Norm Fickthorn, is a lawyer in a big high-powered law firm in, in uh, Washington and a very on-fire-for-Christ Episcopalian. And uh, his church, Fairfax uh, Episcopalian Church, where George Washington used to go to church, 
when we're Civil War soldiers, we're, we're operated on on the pews, and a lot of history there is a very uh, committed to Christ kind of church with like seven services and very on fire for the Lord kind of church, and they uh, decided to split from the Episcopalian denomination, but not until the homosexual thing happened. They didn't see it coming on a philosophical level. The Reformed Episcopalians saw it coming on a philosophical level. Uh, unfortunately, their case was used by the Episcopalian Church as the test case and uh, because it was historically one of the most earliest, I think it might be the oldest Episcopalian church in the country, or one of the oldest, uh, probably not the oldest. Um, but in any case, they lost the case, lost their building, lost their funds. They even started special funds that were earmarked to be for planning a new church if they lost the case and so forth. And the Supreme Court decided those funds belonged to the Episcopalian Church and confiscated them all as well. And they had they uh, started over in a gym rather than uh, capitulate. And several thousand of their members went. They bought a shopping mall and rebuilt uh, the church and so forth. So uh, Lutherans... Uh, have divided in the United States into there's a Missouri Synod Lutherans, there's a Wisconsin Synod Lutherans, and they're sort of the biblically conservative ones. However, most of them are cessationist, but they're certainly not modernist. Um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the largest body of, evangel of Lutherans, is, mo is modernist, and they themselves followed suit and started ordaining homosexual ministers, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that. And um, and all that kind of thing. So, um, just so you know, these are real issues that are among real Christians that are being fought out. Um, the Presbyterians, we have a big, bigger expert on Presbyterianism than me. A lot of people know there's four larger Presbyterian groups, but if you Google it, there's about 33 Presbyterian denominations in America. Right? Does that seem right? And uh, that's how many I counted today on websites. Um, and they're all over the board on this. Most, uh, some Episcopalians are cessation, or some Presbyterians are cessationist, which we'll look at in a minute. Some are modernist. Um, some are mixtures. There are some Presbyterians that are charismatics, and uh, there's a denomination that our friends in Tampa just joined called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. They have some churches in their denomination that are, the whole church is charismatic. So, you know, these ideas are all over the board, and uh, they affect a lot of people. Um, the Methodist Church um, has been a kind of a war between these, between the modernist and the more uh, fundamentalist ideas for a long time. And with the uh, modernists controlling more of the seminaries and the and the more of the rank and file churches being controlled by the more conservative ones. However, Andy informed me, and I'd heard that from some other people, like here in Dayton, the United Theological Seminary, which I took some classes at for the fun of it in the 80s, uh, has been sort of recaptured by the biblical conservatives, right? So... Um, if you want to know more about that, the Methodist, there's um, Thomas Oden, a leading Methodist, wrote a book called, uh, what is it, the, uh, the Rebirth of Orthodoxy. 
and I think it's from around 2003, but I read it maybe seven or eight years ago. Very good book. Um, that would, and he is particularly a Methodist. The United Church of Christ, and so on and so forth. Uh, we were just at the United Church of Christ with uh, John Luke at a con concert that uh, Dan uh, Burks sang in. So, um, a little scriptural critique. I probably should put question marks after apostate and heretical. Uh, I was in my study, so I'm usually a little more radical in my study than I am in public. Um, you know, I, I don't know um, if it rises to that level, certainly not in all cases, but... Um, you know, the whole modernist thing really undermines uh, almost, as we covered in some detail in our in the series we did this spring at Wright State, it undermines a great deal of the faith. Um, and truth ten, tends to be seamless. Uh, I will review, if you remember at the beginning of last semester when we were dealing with words, like defining words like worldview, epistemology, paradigm, hermeneutics, and all that. Remember, we spent several weeks on that at the beginning of last semester. Um, one of the things we covered was called the law of non-contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction is simply this. If, if John Luke says, I really like Sam Chen Poon's red jacket, and uh, Joshua says, what are you talking about? It's a green jacket. And then Gene says, no, no, it's a blue jacket. They, it's possible for them all to be wrong, but it's not possible for more than one of them to be right if they're contradicting each other. And part of the relativistic culture that, that uh, anyone who would be under 40 or so today that's been brought up in is the idea that, well, it can be red to John Luke, and it could be green to Joshua. And if blue is working well for Gene, then... God bless her and her blue truth, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, so uh, that's uh, our culture has actually become that much of a believer in relativism. Who are? You? But the, as we stated, the problem with that is if you if you once you negate the law of non-contradiction, you actually lose all possibility to communicate. Because if I say. Um, I remember in the late 60s watching uh, the first moon landing with Neil Armstrong on television and so forth. You might think um, I said, I really hate communism. <laughs> you know, because, because words have no meaning if, if there's no law of non-contradiction. You could say, I like red, but do I? I don't know if you mean I like red. Or you're really contra saying I like blue, and I really hate red. Like you become, it's imp it becomes impossible to actually function in this world if you get rid of the law of non-contradiction. One of the, something, uh, somebody fairly bright at Wright State pointed out once, and and you know, because on Tuesday nights we have a more Bible discussion format and uh, less lecture format than we're having this summer. Um, somebody pointed out very perceptively, like. Yeah, when you're reading all sorts of books these days, the first thing you have to th figure out is what does the author mean by their vocabulary? Because 
there's no longer accepted usage of words even within the same discipline often. And so it's like, well, what does Gene really mean by blueness? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, what, like, is, is it something really deep? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, does, uh, you know, like, and it becomes impossible to, to carry on a conversation. I love you could mean I want to shoot you. <laughs> or, you know, like, what does it mean? Um, so, um, one of the problems with the whole modernist point of view from a scriptural point of view is that uh, if things aren't inerrant and aren't infallible, and if it's not a trustworthy historical narrative, then where do we stop believing it? Where do we draw the line? There becomes no standard for for believing any truth. So, um, let's talk a little bit about what Jesus had to say about Scripture. In John 5, 39 through 40, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but the Scriptures bear witness of me. Now, what Scriptures is he talking about? The Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, because the New Covenant hadn't been written yet, right? In John 8, he says that if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But if it's not truth, then how do we decide which parts are truth? If, you know, Abraham is just a myth, then how can... You know, Matthew take his genealogy back to Abraham. So, um, you know, and frankly, Jesus is saying, if you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples. He, that, the law of non-contradiction and all, uh, the law of what I call reading the reverse negative means that he's actually saying... Um, if you don't abide in my word, then you're a false disciple. So that, 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 that one of the reasons we have spent most of the 14 years we've been ex in existence, I remember uh, Jason Hale coming to my defense once because someone actually got upset and said, well, why does Greg talk about why we should know our Bibles and read our Bibles in every message and every time and all the time? And why doesn't he get off of this, you know, 52 weeks a year and so forth? And uh, Jason came to my defense and said, well, when, we'd probably, when we don't need to hear that anymore, then he'll probably stop talking about it. But uh, the truth of the matter is there's a crisis in the church today. Almost no one has read their whole Bibles. The whole evangelical side of things, which we're going to get to hopefully tonight, or at least start to get to, uh, is kind of uh, taking an approach of proof text. In other words, we have our preconceived systematic theology and we slap proof text on our ideas. And most evangelicals know a little bit of the Bible here and a little bit of Bible there. But they don't know how to put the Bible together as one narrative, one story written by one God for one kingdom covenant eternal purpose and one eternal decree and, and working toward one overall overarching plan. And um, that's huge. Um, 
Let's let, uh, John 10.35, Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. Matthew, I put these in here in case I forget what some of these scriptures say and have to look. I had Stephen put, put markers in in case I have to turn to them because my brain is getting a little bit mushy as I get older. Uh, John 17, 17, or wait, or, we're still in John, right? John 10, 35 is when Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken. Think about that statement. That's an important statement. He's, he's, that's a statement for every jot and tittle is inerrant. Matthew 17, or John 17, 17, part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Anybody who's been around the Alliance Renewal Churches knows that that's like Ray Nethery's favorite portion of Scripture. And uh, in, John, in verse 17, he says, Set them apart, sanctify them. Sanctify means to set apart to God. In the truth, your word is truth. Matthew 5, 17 through 19 is, Don't think I came to abolish the law. Or the prophets, um, I, I, you know, I did not come to abolish, but to put into force. In other words, he came to empower us to do the law. Um, I am going to have to look up some of these in Luke. Luke 16 is, uh, which one? Here we go. Um, Here we go. But it's easier for the heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Let's turn. I never did turn these lights up. No wonder I can't see. Um, so think about that verse. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. In other words, an iota, a, a, a cross T, I love Luke 24. You know we go there often, especially at Wright State. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Uh, verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, etc. All things that were written about me in the law of Moses and prophets and psalms must be fulfilled. So in essence, uh, we did a whole message in this I guess in the first semester of this past year, because this past year we we were doing this 15 emphasis series, and we we spent the whole year on emphasis five, restoring the idea of continuity of, of covenants and all of scripture, and and getting rid of the reductionist views of scripture and so forth was kind of the theme of the whole year. Um, so. Um, Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus answered and said to them, "You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God." Uh, Mark twelve twenty four says the same thing. I really love that one because think about who he's talking to. He's talking to Pharisees, and to be a Pharisee, uh, it's you know if you read, uh, there, there's a guy named Kevin Springer who's a friend of Ray's, and not that. He's pretty well known. He wrote. He was the the uh, writer of all John Wimber's books and so forth. And he was discipled by Ray and my pastor in the early seventies. And um, you know, he's written some pretty interesting articles that basically have documented that if you grew up in the northern part of Israel in the time of Jesus or the apostles, you would have memorized the 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 five books of Moses by the age of 12 and hundreds of other scriptures. 
And even some ladies were, uh, you know, like men always got better education in those days than women, but some women had that, that sort of approach and, and had that available to them. And um, so um, Jesus is talking to guys that, in other words, to be a card-carrying real member of the Pharisees, you had to have memorized the Old Testament and most of them would have memorized the Mishnah and the Midrash and all. That would be, in essence, if I, if, if I said, John Luke, you can join the club when you memorize the entire ESV study Bible, including all the notes. <laughs> right? That's, that's what these Pharisees were doing. And they had, therefore, um, one of the things that I learned early in academia, because, of course, I was a pagan and I was accepted to college on... Uh, probationary basis because I was a dope pothead and stuff in high school. So when I, you know, became to Christ after my first quarter of college and got serious and so forth, I started having relationships with the the college professors my by my junior and senior year and so forth. And one of the things I learned early is if you question their theories, that was like a personal attack because they had their identity deeply wrapped up in this or that viewpoint of the Native Americans and whatever their particular view of history of what particular peoples and time periods. Uh, they put a lot of their identity in their particular thesis that they were living to support. And Jesus is actually, when he says this to the Pharisees, He's saying one of the greatest put sounds you could ever say. He's telling guys, you don't know the Bible. Who pride, the, the whole purpose of their life was how much they knew the Bible. So this was not like telling, uh, I don't know, I, don't, I can't think of a good analogy, uh, to be honest, but... So, um, and I believe Jesus is clearly saying that if you don't have experiences with the power of God, then you can't rightly understand the scriptures. Um, next thing I want to point out is that we, and again, we did whole weeks on this in uh, fall semester. Jesus attributed the scriptures to their historically recognized authors and quoted them as inerrant. So when he's asked about marriage, for instance, in Matthew 19, he quotes from both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he often refers to uh, the first five books of the Bible as Moses himself. And he talks, he'll talk about David and the Psalms and so forth. So what you can't have it both ways. Either Jesus is wrong... And therefore, why, why are we even Christians? <laughs> like, you can't really be a Christian and say Jesus is wrong all the time. That's inevitably what the modernists are doing. Or, so, um, Isaiah 8.20, Scripture on Scripture, to the law and the testimony, if they don't speak according to these things, it's because they have no dawn or no light. Isaiah 48 says... Uh, the grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Second Timothy 3.16 is probably the most important verse on the doctrine of the plenary inspiration of Scripture that we covered last year quite a bit. All Scripture is inspired by God. Psalm 119.160, the sum of your word is truth. 
hopefully those are verses you all know by now. So let's, let's see if we have enough time because we'll quit at nine. And if you have to go, it's okay. If people, it won't bother me any if people sneak out. Let's see if we can get through cessationism tonight. Maybe not. Um, we've already defined uh, the modified cessationism, right? So again, it's either the idea that the gifts of the Spirit stopped with the writing of the 27 books of the canon, or it's the idea that once they were recognized in the 4th century, then the gifts of the Spirit stopped. And that's kind of a growing new idea. The mod- what I, would- I don't know if it's going to end up being called the new modified cessationism. I just gave it that title. It's just kind of a new- newer idea that's growing. Um, a lot of you know that in the 80s... Um, I mean, wait a minute. Yeah, early 80s, we, uh, we actually, uh, I had written that booklet called Did You Receive the Holy Spirit When You Believe that we have as an article now. And we had teams that would knock on the doors at Bowling Green State University and share the gospel with people. And there was actually a Church of Christ non-instrumental that sent teams to follow our teams to unshare with the people we shared with. <laughs> and... Uh, the problem was uh, two of their pastors, one of you might have heard of, is named Bruce Edwards because he's uh, a leading authority on C.S. Lewis and uh, kind of a popular guy in the Alliance for Old Churches. I uh, passed away about two years ago, very too early. But um, Disney hired, like I have two books that he wrote that Disney hired him to write when they, you know, because they don't miss any advanced marketing ideas. They hired different guys to write books before they released the first Chronicles of Narnia movie. So to help you understand it better. So I got sent a couple of copies of them autographed by Bruce. But both of the, both Bruce and I, I always forget the other guy's name. I had him speak at our church in early years of Dayton. They were, uh, they were elders in the Church of Christ non-instrumental. They were cessationists, and they, uh, the one had written the pamphlet <laughs> against us. Uh, but he actually started to study the idea of cessationism from what we covered last week. It was actually he that gave me the idea to attack it first historic, historically. And he noted, he ended up noting that dozens and dozens and dozens, long before there was a book like Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit available, he did the research by reading through the Nicene Fathers and the Apostolic Fathers, and, and he basically came to realize hundreds of people gave witness to, to hundreds of miracles. And so he ended up getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Both of them ended up joining our church, and uh, Bruce became a, an elder in the church in Bowling Green eventually. And... Uh, they, uh, this, their cessationist buddies were not happy. So, all right, let's get it. So the, there's, you know, the philosophical root of modernism is naturalism uh, or materialism. The, the cessationism has two philosophical roots. One would be the mindsets the Pharisees had in Scripture, not the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more similar to the modernists. Um, the other would be uh, the materialist or naturalist mindset which pervades all of western culture at this point so there's no one who grows up in western culture that doesn't have a uh, a battle going on inside them for faith in the in the spirit of god and the power of god and the holy every even every charismatic is battling with that 
because we live in a culture that has imbibed deeply of that. So um, here's some verses, John 9, 29 through 30. Now, hopefully you know the context. John 9 is when Jesus healed the eyes of uh, the man born blind, and we talked about uh, several messages. We talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus in the New Testament. And the only things that are really unique to the New Testament is that Jesus healed the eyes of people born blind, whereas nobody did that in the Old Testament. People, Elijah rose people from the dead, etc. Uh, Joshua and others changed the course of nature and even the movement of the sun and the earth and its rotation. That's pretty intense. <laughs> That's a big one. Um, and so forth. But um, the other thing is, of course, the casting out of demons. So in, after, after, this is kind of right in the middle of the Sanhedrin, which is mostly Sadducees, some Pharisees, calling in the man born blind to question him. And they say to him, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said, well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. This, um, when, this is kind of an example of something that happens in the Bible a lot. When you're really, really off base, sometimes God will rebuke you through someone you would have considered unworthy of such a rebuke. So like Balaam actually gets re rebuked by a donkey, right? And I've been rebuked by a number of jackasses that have been correct <laughs> at times. <laughs> Sometimes I've needed that, right? <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, one, I, I, boy, it's too late. I probably shouldn't be sharing stories, but the stories are more fun. I know that. But <laughs> one time we were sharing the gospel in the Bowling Green dorm. We would always ask people like what they believe about life and God and stuff. And this guy went on this thing that was like super bizarre. You know, it was like worse than any LSD trip I'd ever been on. He was like, well, there's little green beans and they, our souls go through the cosmos. I don't know what the heck. He, it was like all kind of bizarre stuff. And as he went on and on, I started laughing. And uh, he actually rebuked me and he was correct. He goes, you know, you're not going to win too many people to your opinion if you laugh at what they believe. And the truth is, I probably shouldn't have laughed at what he believed, even though that was probably pretty rude and, and mean-spirited, uh, even though it was, you know, way out there. Um, so my point here is that, the, you know, this, the blind man rebukes the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. And the rebuke's a good one. Well, because the reason they, they, they had philosophical paradigms that caused them to miss Jesus, one of which is that God does special miracles when he's revealing truth. So God did miracles in the ministries of Moses and Joshua, and God did miracles in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, but then that was it. Because they were the fountainhead of the law and the prophets. Right? And so uh, cessationists to this day will say God did special miracles in Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, and that's it. Because he only does miracles when he's about to give a new revelation that becomes inscripturated and part of scripture. That's what they're actually believing and saying. 
So the idea of cessationism actually goes back to, when you read carefully the major and minor prophets, some of why they didn't like Jeremiah and so forth was they were cessationists. And they were saying, no, God doesn't speak to you like this anymore. Now, be, we need to be very clear here. Grace Christian Fellowship, we do not believe that God is going to speak in any such ways as to add to the Scripture. The canon was closed a long time ago. Jude 1, 3, and 4 tells us to contend earnestly for the faith that's once and for all delivered to the saints. And as I say over and over again, the Holy Spirit will never illuminate anything to you contrary to Scripture. But he will quite often illuminate things to you contrary to your former understanding of Scripture when it was wrong. That's a big difference. Okay, so um, there are... I, one of my favorite parts of going to heaven, I hope, is going to be, I'm going to find out I was wrong about a lot of things. And, and rather than be defensive about it, I just know it's going to happen, so I might as well just enjoy it, because then at least I'll understand things more correctly, right? <laughs> so yeah, so uh, the truth is, the Holy Spirit, we need him because he still leads and guides us into all truth. It's just he's not doing it in such a way that he's writing new scripture, but he is doing it in such a way that he's opening up to us things that scripture always had in it and we were missing. Especially uh, often on the paradigm level in terms of how we approach the whole big pictures of scripture. I hope that's clear to everyone. Um, the spirit... This is a very important verse, Acts 7, 51, which is in the middle of Stephen's long recounting of the history of Israel in the book of Acts, just before they stoned him to death. They didn't like his message very well. Didn't, it didn't do well on the podcast, uh, at least not among the Pharisees and San, the Sanhedrin and so forth. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Now compare that to what Jesus says in Matthew 13. This people honors me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. Matthew 21, when he tells the parable of the vineyard owner who rented out the vineyard to vine growers, and they killed, and he sent his servants, which is clearly the prophets, and they killed one and stoned another, and finally he sent his son, and they said, here's the heir, let's kill him, right? And then later in Matthew, because if, if, if uh, later in Matthew uh, 24, after, you know, he closes Matthew 23 with crying over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones there who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together and all that. And then, you know, sometimes you miss things if you put, just take the chapter break out and keep reading. The, the disciples say to him, look at all these beautiful buildings. What what will be, you know, the sign of the, the things you're saying and so forth? And, and then he launches into, um, what's it usually called? The Mount Olivet Sermon and so forth. And so he, and he uh, goes on to, to uh, uh, well, in Matthew 22, he told him the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit thereof. And then he basically, in 23, he says, your house is left to you desolate. And then in 24, he uh, kind of describes the, the destruction of Jerusalem. So, 
which, of course, modern evangelicals have turned into something about the end times, but it's about the destruction of Jerusalem. So, um, which he says will happen within one generation, and it happened, it was finalized, there was kind of a war between the Romans and the Jews all through Palestine from 67 AD to 70 AD, and Titus' destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was in 70 AD, exactly a generation after the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ and so forth. So, um, some some major characteristics of Phariseeism is kind of important to us. And I am going to quit at nine, no matter how far we get. So we may recover some of this next week. I wish I could do better at managing my time. I promise you I'll be a better book writer than I am a speaker. Because I can have more time to think it over. Um, the first thing of Phariseeism is environmental externalism. What do we mean by this? We mean that there's kind of a, like the way we stay godly is by controlling our environment. You know, we don't let our kids ever talk to any bad people or, uh, you know, we don't associate with bad people and, and we're, you know, always like protecting what we see or so forth. Now, some of that is wise. You know, like I always said, well, I, I want to prepare my kids to send them on a mission into the world around them, but I'm not going to send them on that mission in grade school. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but if we're still retreating from the world around us in college, in grad school, and so forth, eventually you got to say, like, when are you going to be equipped enough to face the battle? So, and I'm not against Christian colleges. We have an outreach at Cedarville University, and um, I know professors there and so forth. But, um, you know, it's kind of an over, like, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't run around with the people who do kind of attitude. <laughs> All right, so uh, secondly is performance-based self-righteousness. And self-promotion. I didn't have enough room on the line, so I just put in dot, dot, dot to remind myself. Um, part of the Phariseeism, and, and um, you know, there's, um, you, you know, we use the phrase uh, what moralistic therapeutic deism, which was first coined by a guy named Michael Horton, who's kind of a reformed book writer and so forth. Um, there's kind of this thing today in evangelicalism where I come to the Lord humble and pray a sinner's prayer. And then after this, I got to do a bunch of stuff. And one of the great troubles of Christianity is if you want to grow in grace, you have to do a bunch of stuff. But one of the things we say over and over again is position yourself every day in grace. Think about the depth of your sin, the greatness of his atonement. The fact that you didn't choose him, he chose you. That you were in fact running from him, but he drew you into his kingdom anyway. Start with all these things and understand I don't have to read my Bible, nor go to church, nor cross little old ladies across the street, nor join the Boy Scouts or any other thing. But grace is calling me to know him, and grace is empowering me to want to seek him. 
And if you, that's why in Hebrews 6, when he's, uh, whoever the author is, we'll find that one out in heaven, although John thinks Paul. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the King James Bible originally thought Paul. But uh, in Hebrews 6, 1, when he's listing six foundations of the faith, the first one that is listed is repentance from dead works. Because the fact is, if you start reading your Bible because you think that God's going to love you more, you're going to be more acceptable to God because, because, boy, I read my Bible three hours today, and, and you start doing all these things, uh, it will dry up and be death very quickly. You have to kind of encounter God by the grace of God afresh every day. And the reason we do anything in the Christian life is like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God. Anything that we do that doesn't come out of kind of repositioning ourselves, I, I think you have to reposition yourself at least daily, probably hourly, <laughs> often, in, in rest in the grace of God and in, in his choice of you and his calling of you and his... Uh, faithful is he who called you, and he will also bring it to pass. For, uh, Philippians 1, six. For I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perform, perfect, complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I think you have to kind of, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, John 15.16. You've got to rest in these things again all the time. And therefore, I don't have to read my Bible to be accepted by God. That's a done deal. If I read my Bible, it's because he's calling me into relationship with him. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about being married 35 years is you, you get to such a place of, I love you because God told me to and we're married and we made a covenant. I love you by grace. And it becomes very comfortable, not in an assuming way. Just got my wife flowers the other day. But in, uh, appreciate, appreciate Catherine more than any other person in this world but I know I don't have to do anything to earn her love. And, you know, that's all a done deal. God took care of that, put it in her heart. Uh, we, you know, like I can just enjoy that. And therefore, I want to know her all the more. And that's how all good relationships are. Did Stephen leave? Yeah. I'm out of water. Hey, Sam, can you check? I think, I think, uh, well, it's time to quit anyway. Don't worry about it. Um, see if I can somehow bring this to an end here. <laughs> um, the Pharisees were anti-present Holy Spirit activity. That's very important. In other words, the Sadducees, uh, who were more like the, the modernist liberals, they rejected miracles, angels, heaven, hell, spiritual things altogether. The Pharisees, on the other hand... And that, by the way, whenever you have modernist uh, ideas that reject the supernatural and so forth, you'll want more environmental and political solutions to problems. Almost all Sadducees will want the right people in office and the right welfare state and all this kind of nonsense. Um, the Pharisees were okay with acknowledging God's supernatural acts in the past, but not now. And that's a huge part of any kind of pharisaical thinking. Like, we, Jesus rose from the dead, but Jesus doesn't do anything in the, these days. 
that's a huge part of that. We'll get into that more next week. Um, and in fact, um, hmm. yeah, I'm just going to have to bring this to a close. We'll, we'll start with the, the opposite biblical trajectory idea next week. Um, yeah, so let's, we'll pick up, we'll just kind of redo cessationism next week and start from there. So I might be on this more weeks than I thought. Although I don't think third wave or continuationism will take much time. So let's just end there because I'm out of time and I don't really want to go past nine o'clock, even though I, I didn't manage my time very well. Amen.